Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, my spiritual podcast where I talk to people about, you know, that side of life we're not supposed to talk about. The two things you're not supposed to bring up at any dinner party are religion and politics. Uh, if you want a good buzzkill for a party, just say the word God. Uh, unless everybody's really well on their way to the next dimension, they're not going to want to have that conversation. Uh, even when I was a kid and we were, you know, partying, as they euphemistically called it, uh, we never really talked about that, that kind of stuff. And if you talk to everybody, everybody has a different answer about that word. So what's God to one person is not God to another person. A lot of the times you end up with the kind of Santa Claus version, you know, the naughty and nice list and the white guy with a beard and sitting on a throne. Uh, so that's kind of when you leave religious talk in pre-adolescence, adolescence, and never come back. Kind of like my producer, Mike. He just he got he went there and he just never came back. He just, he just decided, forget it. This is not for me. It's like Woody Allen's line, death, I get it. It's just not for me. You know, that's the way that rolls. Uh, what a, I, I don't know about you, but I think I've already bent a few curves on this pandemic thing. I, I We sort of got through the first blush of it. Everybody behaved well three months. And then we all start to get a little mental health check going. I don't know how much more of this I can take. Thing is, we got to take a lot more of it. And we, we need to kind of center ourselves in the middle of all this because there's this for instance, that whole mask thing that's going on, particularly in the United States, and equating the not wearing of a mask with freedom, when really masks are not to protect you from somebody infecting you, it's from you infecting somebody else. So really, it's an act of compassion and caring and love. And they've reduced it into an act of violent aggression against the rights of someone to do whatever they please, regardless of whether or not it affects other people. So I find myself very sad for my American cousins at this point in time. And I find myself wondering if there is a redemption for America in its present form. I mean, I try to remember that just a short three and a half years ago, Barack Obama was the president of the United States. But the chaos of this administration, the, the evil of, of the actions, you know, the, the kind of, there's a, there's a fantastic play by Bertolt Brecht, who was a German playwright who emigrated to the United States when Nazi Germany was in its rise. It's called The Resistible Rise of Arturo Uwe. If you know Brecht, it's because Kurt Weill used to write the music to his Broadway plays, Mac the Knife is the most famous song because Bobby Darin did something with it. But Brecht himself was a highly political writer. And he wrote The Resistible Rise of Arturo Uli, where he conflated Al Capone and Hitler. And he made the central character someone in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, who rose through the ranks of the criminal underclass as a produce king and started having people paying protection money. And then finally they got to the point where they were being violent with people. And then they crossed the border into killing people. And by the end of the play, this character is standing on the balcony and delivering a Hitler speech, you know, just with this raving, powerful speech. 
and he has become a crazed autocrat. And I can't help but feel that these days, even with a virus that is agnostic to what you believe and what you care, the virus doesn't care what you believe. If it's going to kill you, it's going to kill you. We end up with the kind of, if you notice the highest incidence of a virus spread are in autocratic states with hard-edged rulers, and in some cases, murderous rulers. That's where it's spreading the most. Brazil, the United States with Trump. It's, it's just so hard to, to get your head around it. But spiritually, it leaves me in a place where I vacillate between feeling that we have an opportunity to do something here, that all the rules are off, which is in a way good because we can sort of snap out of our stupor and figure out what to do with the rest of our time with eight years to go before climate change overwhelms us. And the other part of me just feels like, we can, can we not even just do this? Can we just simply stand six feet apart, put a mask on indoors, wash our hands? Is it really that much to ask of people? So I'll leave you with all those thoughts. Uh, Hawksley Workman is my guest today. I'm not that kind of rabbi. And we've never met. We've never met. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people in my life. The Hawk, I have not interviewed. So um, I just want to start by saying it's nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you too, Ralph. Um, any thoughts on some of the things I was just rap rambling about? Um, well, like I said to you before we went on air, because um, there was some talk of ending one's life <clears throat> oneself, <laughs> and um, and I had had this feeling that you and I were going to have to talk about that for some reason or other. Um, all the things that you just spoke about are all part of um, <clears throat> a big sort of uh, an ongoing apocalyptic narrative that has sort of been part and parcel to my waking existence for the better part of my adult life. Um, and so I've, I've had a doom and gloom element to my character for such a long time that, to be honest with you, very recently I decided to put it down because I couldn't carry it any further. And I just, it's not adding any value to my life. And at 45 years old, I'm having these sort of hormonal shifts, I think, that occur when you are in your midlife. And um, like my next record is called um, Less Rage, More Tears. And I watched my dad move from rage to tears as he got older. And I'm doing that now, too. So um, I don't want to carry this this misanthropy any further. I don't want to carry this this feeling of n nothing is worth anything because we're all certain to be headed to hell in a handbasket. Um, because I had carried it for so long and I'd done so much, I'd, I'd, so much of my life I'd busied in order to sort of, to create a, a soft place to land. I was trying to outsmart the apocalypse. And then I think recently it's like, well, that's just pointless. And I'm just going to try and find an ounce of joy wherever I can um, even though the better part of my, you know, my intellectual mechanism is fixed on all of the stuff you were just talking about. Um, but I'm just trying to not be so um, um, abruptly dour about it all, all the time, because it doesn't make you a good husband either, and it doesn't make you a good person to be around. But um, 
I, I've had a, a really dwindling faith in humankind for such a long time that I don't remember the other setting, you know, where there is that sort of hopeful part. And I thought it was interesting what you said about compassion versus this this new aggressive freedom narrative, which is such an odd part of what is kind of coming out of the U.S. these days. Um, this, I have a right to whatever I want. I have a... Um, and the citizenry, when when I think if that is the... the if that is the fundamental um, maxim that that drives your instincts, um, I think that you're, you know, it, and especially for a country that that is so evangelical, that some of the um, the, the Christian tones that you, we we all might have been able to sort of agree on the compassion, the um, the creation of a situation that's better for the all as opposed to the single. Like, I guess if you think about it, there's an Anton LaVey sort of satanic element to this might of the one and crush the all. Um, but it doesn't get talked about very much. But a lot of stuff doesn't get talked about when it comes to the United States. And I think, sadly, I think that um, the baseline... Uh, the baseline education of, of your average American or North American, really, like, I think that, I think the problem is that we have maybe slipped a little and allowed um, a very persistent and very um, insidious uh, pursuit of a, like, I have always called it the great cultural dumbdown, and, and I, and we're all sort of par a part of it to some degree where there's, I, I know that, you know, when I think back to my major label days, I think, oh, there was the times when I was trying to get on the radio or the times where I was making decisions that were in order to try and fit into a hole that might create a bit more commercial success. And, and that is my sort of small way of being complicit in this great sort of dumb down. But I think in the U.S., um, it's, you know, it's in retail, it's in entertainment, it's in, I mean, it's here too. And, I, and, and I'm not trying to be disparaging by any stretch, but when I look and, and when I try to, 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 to look past some of my, um, my knee-jerk reaction, which resembles a more hateful, uh, my, my, my hateful instincts pop out, I try to rekindle some of that compassionate sensibility, which is really that, that some people just maybe aren't quite smart enough to think certain situations through in a way that they could arrive at a place where they would have a, a creative or constructive um, sensibility uh, or um, solution for the, the the myriad of problems that sort of face us at this particular point in, in human history. Well, there's a lot in what you just said. Um, one of the things that I find interesting is it sounds like you're making a conscious choice, which, you know, at the best of times, if we want to alter the way we see the world, it's really difficult to change those lenses, but that you somehow have either willed yourself to a different place or have decided that you're going to, you see, in spiritual terms, sometimes, uh, we decide either we're going to conquer the beast or we're going to befriend it mm. and walk down the path with it. Where are you at? Are you in the, I must conquer this or I must companion this? Um, I think 
I think probably I need to companion it. I think that that conquering mentality goes along with my less rage, more tears. Like in my younger, angry young man, young angry young artist days, um, the the order of the day was to, to to smash through all the walls in front of me in order to try and create some sort of success narrative for myself. You know, and as you sort of apply that kind of thinking to your life outside of what my music career was, you know, once you're sort of married and settled down and things are starting to kind of, your, your life takes a new shape and I've, I've created a bit of success and for myself. And, and so I think I start to look at how I can be, how I can stay um, self-reflective and ready to pivot um, within the, the course of my belief system and to try and stay open to things because I am also quite hard-headed about stuff. And, um, But yeah, I, I don't think I need to crush things anymore. I think I'm trying to befriend these. But I feel um, in particular what's happening with the Black Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter there's been a sort of a renewed sense, at least I'm feeling, that you have to sort of consciously, in some ways, um, disassemble some of the ideological mechanisms that you've just taken uh, for granted all of these years, um, and have a an honest look at that stuff with the toolbox out, um, and and have a willingness to have a to be very conscious within within the um, the purview of that landscape in order to look at the way you think it's something hit me about 10 years ago where I was under the I was under the assumption that my um, uh, my character my the person I am that and somehow I am in control of who I am of how people perceive me the person that I am out in public the person that I am with my family that 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 everything that comes out of my mouth, everything that goes and, and seeks to sort of create the, and establish the picture of the human that I am, I am somehow in control of. And then you have this bizarre moment where you wake up and realize that you're just a series of learned reactions to stimuli that, you know, it's 45 years in the making in my case. And so it, it terrified me to think that I wasn't in full control of Hoxley Workman, the guy, the character, the human, the person, the personality, that all of that stuff was outside of my 100% control, that that really these were just an, this was just an assemblance of learned and trusted sort of rhythmic reactions, something that I no longer have to think about. And my personality just operates within... Um, under under the energy of its own forward movement, and I I don't know why that terrified me because I thought for all these years that I was in unique control over all of this stuff, and then of course you wake up and realize you know you know when my wife gets you know miffed at me for getting angry at a certain thing that makes me angry every time and I get vocally angry, it's like man where did that come from? Why can't I weed this one thing out that would create more harmony in my daily life? But for some reason we don't. Know, I, you just don't, and and that really irked me. It irked me because I think I had expected a lot from my parents. I'd expe I expect a lot from the people around me. I expect them to have um, uh, a very acute set of parameters when it comes to sensitivities um, and just self-reflection. And I want to talk a little bit about that idea of. It sounds like an issue of control. Mm. You're kind of talking about the people in your life, they should have some control. And mm -hmm. you disappoint yourself whenever you don't have control. Yeah, man, that's exactly right. But 
you know, the old joke is if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Because we, we don't really, this isn't a, a spiritual life is, is actually about surrender as opposed to control. Mm. Right. That the humility to be able to say, you know what, this is not actually the Hawksley Workman project. This is actually just my blink in the eye of existence mm. and my attempt at a prayer. You know, the albums you make, the sounds that come out of you, the passion, it's your prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And when people resonate with that, when you see an audience, which we've almost forgotten what they look like, but when you see one, they're in a congregation with you. You know, they're sharing that. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's not really about controlling that environment. It's you know that your better performances are the ones you don't control, or the mm -hmm. ones that just seem to have happened to you, right? Yeah. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about those ideas. Well, I mean, it was very astute. Uh, and the idea of control, it's, it's really, 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 really big. Um, um, I definitely am keenly aware of my interest to remain in control of a lot of stuff. Um, but I will say that the abandon that I seek on stage, and that is in some ways, I think, part is kind of my stock and trade or my currency is that I get on stage and let it rip. I get on stage and give it all over to this this angel of what, that you're kind of talking about. Those the, those two hours or 90 minutes on stage, 90 minutes to two hours on stage, I am not in my body and it is um, very much a surrender to that uh, to that movement. And I believe in that very strongly, and I think that that is, uh, you know, I think that's why we're all in that room together, seeking an opportunity to leave the planet, uh, not necessarily physically, but to leave spiritually together. And I definitely am the leader of that moment that we all choose to be together in that in that room. And it's sort of my job to be the chief executive in charge of letting go. Yeah. Well, you're the clergy. Yeah. And that's, a. I feel, I, and it's funny, when I was a kid, for me, um, I have no education, but my two, you know, my two paths, I thought I could be a United Church minister or I could end up being a musician. Because I ended up, I spent time in the United Church as a kid, not because my parents were overly devout or pious in any way. They're, I had young parents who had young kids, and I think they woke up one day when they were 20, 20 years old each thinking we're supposed to do something with these kids. Like, so they shoved us in church and cubs in the first, you know, in the same week. And then all of a sudden we were, and then the church was interesting to me because, uh, you know, the United church in our little rural community was interesting because they sang these great songs and there was all kinds of opportunities for me as a kid to perform. And there wasn't, um, the guilt maybe associated with other, uh, Christian outlets. And so, I had a great experience within that, and and but all that to say that I carry a little bit of my instincts even for the stage from what it was about the United Church when I was a kid that made sense to me and that felt spiritual and in and of itself felt like it was um, uh, 
it was a release or um, an acquiesce. An ac- you were ac- you were there to acquiesce to something much bigger than you, and that excited me. So, when did you decide that wasn't going to be your path? I think that music was always the dominant, my dominant thing. Like as Jay Z said, it's not the life that I chose, but the life that chose me. So, there wasn't really a question. But you know, when you're going through high school, and and most of my teachers knew that I was, you know, a kind of a young little phenom playing all these instruments and singing these songs and whatever and but you know everybody told you because I think that's their job when you're young and impressionable that you should have a backup plan and so I thought well I had a really good United Church minister when I was a kid and his whole he was a he was a he was evangelical about John Updike and about theater and those two things for him I think were every bit as important as you know as the Bible, anything that could have come from the Bible. So, you know, he would do two plays a year, and for me and other teenagers and like-minded sort of, you know, nerdy kooks who didn't have other things to do, um, we found real belonging within this sort of church-slash-theater thing. And um, so he was a great role model, and he was somebody that kind of gave shape to to my teenage years in a way that made me feel like what I was doing was special. So, but... um, Outside of that, that's why I don't think I ended up... I still think of it potentially as a retirement gig, which is terrible. It's that that uh, Margaret Atwood at a dinner party and a, a brain surgeon says he's retiring and thinking about trying his hand at writing. And she said that's interesting because she's thinking about retiring and trying her hand at brain surgery. Um, you know, without being offensive, you know, like, it's not it's not a retirement gig. It's a, it's a full-time thing, but it, it still interests me. Well, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself on the idea that you you would do it in another phase of your life because there is the phase of life where one creates through ego many different iterations of themselves. And then as one gets older, often there is the contemplation of life and the reflection and the sharing of wisdom and the mentoring of people. Mm. So you can do that through your music, but you can do it through your music and through through ministry with people as well because... You know, there's no shortage of need for us to find people who can be the connective tissue in a society, ones who can really make it. And the music is a beautiful way to do it. Mm. So if I say God, what, what comes to mind for you when I, when I say the word God? Well, it's interesting because going back to what my instinct was and then what I've trained myself to think, I've trained myself to think God is oneness. Um, my instinct, of course, I think back to... The Santa Claus version of God, you know, which was uh, the version of God probably set into motion when I was a very young kid, and that when my brain conjures up an image at the first, at the first, uh, when I first hear that word, I think of, yeah, um, a Santa in the sky in the clouds. But no, I mean, nowadays, God is that oneness, um, God is that connective light, God is the fact that we're all resonant matter here together and some of it's shaped like a table and some of it's shaped like you and me. So is there a creative force that is guiding this constant creation of the universe or is it beyond our comprehension to even hazard a guess or is it really just things going on period? uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's I think it's number two uh, for me. It's it's too big. Again, in that in in my 
my sad little ism is a desire to control. And I think a desire to come up with a full set of inclusive details as to what the hell is going on here. And now I know that there's an excellent chance I will be on my deathbed and have no fucking idea. So um, I think that I have to hand myself over to this, that I, I have a, an ego that continues to drive me in the direction of making things. I find now that I'm even older that having a day, a, a daily sense of my own value. Um, you know, my wife and I have been staying at my father-in-law's place. We moved from Montreal to Peterborough during the pandemic and didn't find a house in time. So we've been living here for six months. So we've just finished up a big tiling job. Uh, we tiled his kitchen and a couple of entryways and, um, we did that as a sort of a thank you for letting us stay in your house until we were able to find suitable lodgings of our own. Why am I talking about this? I've gone circuitous and now I uh, and now I can't I can't find the road. But what, what were we it's talking about? Well, I, I'm finding it interesting that you went there because it was sort of like the journey of accepting that you don't know what the hell's going on here, going to your deathbed not knowing what the hell's going on. <laughs> right. I think I know what and I was. Yet- <laughs> No, I was going to say that it's funny with this midlife thing that it takes only a handful of of positive things to action yourself in a day that I can lay in bed with my wife and go, that was a good day today, you know, like, and and I think too, like, because I was always an overachiever and and won awards in school and, and, you know, expected to come into the music business and and I didn't know that the the music business was going to be so fraught with so much sort of with so many humiliations that are out there and you're, you're in the entertainment business too, a lot of years. And I'm sure that you went through a lot of that yourself. And, and it's funny now I find that I just am looking to have a, to actualize small things in the day because these days just stack up one after another. And my need to have these enormous accomplishments, like going and playing um, some big important venue in Paris, France, like I can't do that every day of my life. In fact, that only happens, you know, once a year now, if that. And so I can't, I can't have that be the fulcrum on which the entire sort of the entirety of the balance of my happiness rests. So now I have to do stuff like tile my father-in-law's kitchen or wash the car or, you know, do these simple things that add up to what starts to feel like a productive life, which starts to feel like I'm adding back meaning into my daily existence, because I think I was a bit of a glutton for big spiritual things to happen or big life happenings. And I think when you're in the entertainment business as well, you can, I think that's why a lot of us get into drugs and alcohol, because you are a glutton for big moments to continue to occur and when you're off the road or when you're in the situation like this where your job has effectively been taken away from you you can't have these big glory moments where it feels like all of the angels are out singing on high and for you and all of you the great things that you've achieved by coming off stage or doing something wild like that and i i'm i guess i'm trying to um have effective but simple daily rituals that add up to me feeling like a good human and somebody who operates productively within the purview of the 18 hours or whatever it is that you're awake in the day. You know, um, when you were talking about tiling your father-in-law's house, uh, uh, you and your wife, and and I realized that I always wanted to make a TV show with my wife called Jewish Home Repair. And what we would do, the first half is 
look at the thing that we were supposed to fix and go, that's really broken. <laughs> and then like try to do something and make it much worse. And then we'd call someone. <laughs> and the second half of the show is actually how you're supposed to repair this thing. I, I think it, I think there's a lot of potential. There. <laughs> well, there's to me, there is, there's been no greater, um, you know, who saw that this home garden television thing was going to create a lane for itself within the sort of American uh, entertainment landscape that would be so thoroughly, they would have such an enormous effect on how we live our lives. And, t- in, and I, I kind of look at even the way real estate has worked in the last 10 or 15 years, and even the, 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 the mighty um, exponential growth in numbers we see with real estate in big cities in Canada, I think has been, in some ways has been buttressed by a home garden television and this instinct that you can walk into your own situation and fix it yourself and that, you know, any home can be taken from shabby and made into beautiful and you can do it. And even the old uh, Home Depot slogan of um, you can do it, we can help. Uh, you know, it's a toy. <laughs> I wonder, I think you, you might have something, Ralph. I think that the world could, could really go for this. I think there is no end to watching people destroy their homes and or fix their homes. I will, we all sit around and just want to watch each other do this. I think it's elemental. Well, I think yeah, but it's, it, it's part of the material life. The solution to life is material. In other words, we, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, you, you have to, suffering, samsara comes from clinging and grasping. You cling to notions of permanence and you mm. grasp for something just beyond the reach of what you have. And we're doing that with so many things. And what this pandemic has done is it slapped everybody in the face and said, stop already, just stop. Mm. Stop buying everything. Stop driving everywhere. Stop doing everything. Yeah. Just sit down. And it's freaking people out because they're, they're not used to that. They're used to a life of diversion. Mm. And they're also, you know, in this kind of a society, my belief is that what we, what we have is a culture of inadequacy. You can't sell somebody something if they already have it. Mm. So you have to make the person feel inadequate that they don't have what, what, you're, what you're selling them. You, they don't have the, the, the song you're selling them. They don't have mm-hmm. the, the clothes you're selling them, the car. Even if they buy the house, the one across the street, well, you got to admit, that's a better house. So you don't have that. And so, so you constantly go in these cycles of, of need, uh, of turning want into need. Mm. Right? It's not need. It, it's want. But we make it, oh, but I have to have it. Yeah. You know? Uh, and this emo- emotionally driven life uh, is, it's a mug's game. There's no way around it. And part of that for me and my belief system is that we have a spiritual hole in ourselves. You know, I moved from Toronto to Hamilton. And one of the reasons was I felt that the scale of the city had not lent itself to a spiritually fulfilling community life. Mm. That everybody's just like, could you get that? Fuck out of my way. I'm trying to get somewhere. You know, nobody let you in in traffic. Nobody yeah. said hi in a cafe. Yeah, I know. You know, and you know, now I'm, right now I'm living in Montreal can feel that way too. Right. But now I'm living in, in a place that's one sixth the size of, of Toronto. And when you walk by somebody, they say hello. They say yeah. hello. And it, it's small, but it matters. Right. Well, I think now, like you said, when when you've been deprived by simple hellos, um, I even looked into the magnetism that people were trying to um, 
to express in their eyes with their faces hidden behind masks. And, and some of my earliest ventures out with my mask on, the intensity with which I tried to connect with the handful of people I may have seen at the grocery store or wherever else. I mean, we have really have been starved for simple hello um, since the beginning of this. And I think that's been a big lesson for everybody. Like you said, the slowdown has been um, disconcerting, but that lack of connection and not even necessarily big, walloping, eureka-style human spiritual connection, but the simple hello that you're speaking of. It's funny, I remember being in East London with a friend years ago, and the hellos that happened on the streets around Brick Lane, back before Brick Lane kind of looks like it looks now. Um, those hellos were simple and delicious and, and, and very British in the way they happen. And I always thought, like, there's something about, there's something about this. There's something about a city that um, that says hello, uh, that it's a city that stays together and they're in it for the right reasons, I think. I love that. It's a song, right? The city says hello. It could be a song. It just should be a song. Yeah. A city yeah, that because, says hello, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we're, we're, we're starving for connection. So as a musician in this time who was about to go on a tour with uh, Sarah Sleen yep. uh, and now ain't, and uh, she's been on the program as well. We had a lovely time talking together. Um, and she's doing concerts from her, from her home. Uh, but I'm, I'm speaking to different people in different genres and they're like, you know, it's okay. But this is, a, you know, being a musician, unless you're just a pure session player uh, without the connection to an audience, where do you get your artistic juice right now? Or are you giving that part of your life a rest? Um, I've created this little show called Hoxley night in Canada, which was an idea I had years ago. I had pitched this variety show idea to the CBCU and which is funny because I know You've hosted variety shows on the CBC, and um, I'd host, I'd, I'd pitched the idea of Hoxley Night in Canada uh, ten or twelve years ago to with with no success. So I've built this little TV show that has stop motion animation and landline telephone calls with fans that call in, and I write songs about people's pets. And I've been saying it's like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets Tommy Hunter, and without the the pandemic, I would never have gotten down to the brass tacks of making this little television show. So um, I'd had a TV show on the local cable network in my town of Huntsville when I was a high school student. Um, I'd always loved handmade local stuff, um, even now living in Peterborough and watching Czechs television and being a part of the local media landscape. I'm really excited about how small media can get now that it seems that media can only exist um, if it's enormous, you know, that small things happening are really exciting. So my little small TV show called Hawks and Night in Canada has been where I've put my entire focus. Um, it takes about two weeks of my energy and my wife's energy to, to make this show. And uh, frankly, it's it's the way I'm, I'm getting excitement out of, of making stuff. And I think too, you know, the, the years where you have a myopia about creating your music life and going after the fame that everybody wants you to have and that the record label's excited for you to achieve and blah, 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 it means that you get locked into a sensibility of, I'm a, 
I'm the guy on Much Music who's dancing around on that video with a cutoff shirt or whatever, without ever just believing that the, or w- without, I guess, um, having this f- full realization that an artist's life or the life of somebody who wants to make things, it, it can operate in all kinds of disciplines. And I feel that as I've gotten older and I got about as famous as I was going to get and the major label is nowhere to be seen anymore and here I am alone and all of a sudden, um, you know, in the last five or six years, I've done a lot of theater, I'd written a children's book um, and I can make this TV show and making stuff is just what I do for a living. I mean, at the center of it, it comes down to the songs I've written over the last 21 or 22 years and the 18 records I've put out and the 1500 or plus shows I've, I've done around the world um, that is the, you know, that's the anchor, but the rest of it is me getting to be childlike and playful, um, and getting to let the excited elements of those, the childlike parts of create creation run free. And I make my little TV show and I feel like a kid and it's really saved me through this whole pandemic thing. I moped around for about the first four weeks or six weeks. And then I was like, I just can't do this anymore. I unplugged from the television news and I unplugged from all of the stuff that seeks to kind of make us sad and angry. And I just got down to the business of making a silly ass television show in the basement of my father-in-law Don's house. And it is glorious. And I will, I don't think it's going away. I think it's what they call colloquially a thing. And I think it will continue to be a thing. And my little Hoxie Night in Canada show is going to have a little life for as long as I wish it to. Um, out Even when this pandemic thing finally comes to an end, I think I'll make my little Hoxie Night in Canada show. Yeah, you have this constant pulse of creation in you. It's interesting because, you know, in a spiritual lens, everyone has a divine spark in them and you know the hindus quite naturally say namaste i salute the divine within you um we don't do that we just go hey how's it going (laughs) 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 and everybody just says fine you yeah i'm good and regardless of where they're really at as people right We, we don't we don't know like it's always interesting when you really get to know somebody a little more that you we have this illusion that everybody else is fine. We're the one who's a bit screwed up. Mm-hmm. And then we realized when we get to know people, we're all screwed up. That's yeah. part of the glory of um, You know, at the beginning of what you were saying, you, you touched on something that made me think that, you know, when we were talking about do you conquer the beast or do you companion it, that there is a thread of sorrow that's gone through things you've done in life. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, I mean, sorrow feels like a, a, a particularly literate word. Uh, I've been just feeling like there is a blasé to it. May, I mean, maybe that's different. Um, I, I went to, I had a great family physician in Montreal, and I just thought, you know, I'm going to just take a little look at this thing, this gnawing discontent that just sits there and it's always sat there. And I think it's in my mom. I think it's in, I think it's just been there. And that gnawing discontent when you do get to your restless midlife where you're under the impression, especially having gone through the 90s and having gone through, you know, afternoon television became a way to identify your place in the victimhood scheme. You know, it seemed like that's what Donahue was about. That's what Oprah was about. And in the 90s, we acquainted that we were all individually had 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 
we'd been victimized somehow by our upbringing, by our childhoods, by something that had happened at school, and all of it very legitimate, because I think we were all trying to work through what you maybe called sorrow, and maybe I'm not on, maybe I'm not identifying, or, or maybe I'm not clear on what it was you were, you were talking about with sorrow, but I think that I woke up, because I had a self-help mom, and I kind of figured that by my midlife, I would have had all of these things sorted out. And here I was, you know, a successful guy within, you know, the, the landscape of the Canadian entertainment biz. And, and I was still, my, my baseline emotion was still drab or still dour or still dissatisfied. I think that's really the word. It's dissatisfied. I remember a few um, New Year's Eves ago, my wife had some friends at our house and I was particularly having an ugly day and we were sitting at the dinner table and having wine and going around let's all talk about what you'd like for this year and everybody has something lovely and elaborate to 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 contribute and I was just being a a drunk grump and I said that I just don't want to be dissatisfied this year if I could have a year where I'm just not dissatisfied that would be great which is not (laughs) that was the bit of a buzzkill So maybe I'm maybe I'm not getting your sorrow, but I think I'm dissatisfied, and I'm dissatisfied with everything. Um, but it makes me a good maker of stuff. I think it makes me a good. Uh, but I, but I, it, it is exhausting. It is exhausting because there are some oh. moments that could just be simply enjoyed, whatever that is. Um, and I think that. In what I've, you know, and, and I think this goes back to what we had earlier in the conversation about: are these conscious fixes? Are these things that you're? Are these? Are these conscious? Um, are you trying to? Are you messing with the internal, like the the mechanisms within the clock, consciously? And I think that some of my conscious effort to become a satisfied person or a person who has an ability to savor moments of joy, like doing a tile floor, to me. It's the process of going through doing the tile floor. All of my instincts want to cut corners. It wants to get done quick. It doesn't. I don't want to be sitting on my knees anymore. I'm tired of of the lie burning through um, the the you know the my the skin on my hands. Like I just wanted to be done. But then there's something joyful about committing to the task and letting the task run your life and 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 I guess handing yourself over to the fact that there's a methodology to tile and it's you know probably thousands of years old and I'm just one guy trying to do a good deed for my father-in-law here and I will create self-satisfaction by going against my instincts to rush through the job to try and cut corners to do something shoddy which is kind of I didn't come from a handy dad you know I'm a I'm I, I've had to learn this the hard way and then I get excitement out of the sort of this 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 sweat equity that you can kind of you kind of build into your spiritual character you know well there's a saying uh you know people look for god in the in in lightning bolts that will hit them in a moment and they'll change forever but uh, in clergy there's a saying that uh, god is in the laundry (laughs) i think it's absolutely true like there's something holistic about the honesty in that in those pursuits. And again, that comes from somebody who had to perform minor miracles every time you go out in the, in the Canadian, in, you know, entertainment industry. Um, you've got a lot of people around you who are dissatisfied all the time. It needs to, you need to have a thousand people at the show. Okay, well, I did a thousand. Yeah, well, too bad it wasn't 1,500. It's like, okay, well, the next time it'll be 1,500. Then it's 1,500. Yeah, it's too bad it's not 3,000. And then you get into this 
you stand on your head over and over again, and the people around you whose lives and livelihoods de depend on you and your ability to kind of create that momentum and create that opportunity for success that everybody gets to have that in, that really exciting pile on. When things are going great in the, in the entertainment business, there's nothing like it. It's just a wonderful situation, especially if you're at the center of it. You're the, you're the, the guy whose the name is on the, is on the ticket. You're the, that's the name that's on the, uh, on the record, or you're the name on the, on the billboard of the venue. Like, that's really exciting. And then there's something empty that happens once you start to predicate all of your, um, all of your joy on those lightning bolt moments that you talk about. And then all oh. of a sudden, there's something exciting about a six-day procedure of pulling up two two sets of poorly laid floors from the past um and then putting down a new floor that you're going to erase or you're going to undo some of the shoddy stuff that went before and you're going to correct it methodically um with this sort of delicious intention and you want to be the one who writes an old wrong. And for me, there had been two wrong floors laid. And for me, I, I am I'm going to write those wrongs. And those 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 wrongs were left to linger almost unseen for decades. Those floors go back to the '60s. Two different floors to a house that was built in the mid '60s. And I'm going to write that wrong. For me, that is something that is exceptional. And no one has to know that. I keep thinking when we were doing this tile job because there's lots of things I could have maybe just ah you know what we'll just leave that and no one will notice and and there's that story about uh steve jobs talking about that apple computers need to be built beautifully on the inside and of course you have that luckless uh uh employee saying sir sir why does it matter what it looks like on the inside of nobody if nobody's ever going to see it and i think jobs says something about well they're not going to see it but we're going to know and when you know that it's beautiful inside that your you know your happiness with your project or your or your your product is 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 complete yeah. and i f i feel that i feel that with this tile job and i try and have those kinds of jobs throughout what I do and even the making of the TV show um, TV doesn't get made easily music is easy it's easy for me it's e music making a three and a half minute song is easy but making things with more moving parts I think too because I've been doing a lot more theater I, I worked at Stratford last year with a great director Jill Kiley and when I did my own show The God That Comes which was the story of Bacchus which had a lot of success seven eight years ago theater people are an art bunch that just love to live in a constant state of process. And for a rock and roll guy who, it takes you 20 minutes to write a song, it takes you a day to record it, you arrive at a venue, you set up, you do the show, it's two hours long, you tear it down, everything is immediate, it's on and gone. And and then when you get in in, in the theater world, theaters are like laying tile. Like, if, yeah. if, if the tile ain't straight, well, then you pop it back up and you start again. Like, and theater people just love this. Theater people don't care about the show at all, I don't think. I think they care about taking the show apart and putting it back together again and taking it apart and putting it back together again. And they care about the fellowship of theater, which is something, again, I had no idea because really rock and roll is quite solitary. But I think that there's something spiritual that I learned going through the processes of theater and that these, these process obsessives in theater that I had to learn to like being out of control and being uncomfortable for long stretches at a time. Because, and I just, it's not instinctively not what I want to do. I like things to be done. You know, that's very well put. Because when I came from theater into a brief period of time of being in a horrible cover band uh, for about uh, almost two years, and it was just like, this is not the life for me. 
But when I got there, I realized, you know, no slight to musicians, but it was an entirely different way of going about things. There was, a, you know, like people were late for rehearsals. Bass player mm. was always the last guy there. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, late? How could you possibly be late? I came from rehearsals for stage where everybody's on time and everybody's warmed up and everybody's ready to go. But it was always about, the, like the best night was the dress rehearsal or the technical dress rehearsal before the actual opening night, before we had to give it away to everybody. Absolutely. We got to own it for a little while and there was the smell of the lights just firing up, you know, that little heat, that wisp of, of mild little smoke out of some of the lights once in a while and yep. everybody was in there together. I was saying to some uh, actor friends of mine who I, I'm in a nonfiction book club with, I said, you know, the thing about theater is when people see each other and they haven't seen each other for 14 years, they hug as if it, 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 they're, they're related to each other. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it is a fellowship. I think you, you, you have the right word for it. There. Yeah. So where do you go? One more, th I, we'll do one more thing. Um, you've spoken a few times about midlife. Mm. And, you know, in a spiritual journey, there are seasons to life. There is your spring, you know, your adolescence, your early 20s. Then there's a summer of achievement and, you know, the, the convertible top is down and you're driving down the highway of life <laughs> and it's feeling pretty good because you actually have your shit. Uh, and then there's the, knowing that autumn is on the horizon that the leaves will fall and that it sounds to me like you you can see autumn from where you are now mm. i feel like i've been able to see autumn since i was three years old and i mean that literally um a sense of my own mortality is what drove me to become a great musician when i was a kid i practiced an an, an abnormal amount and I, I knew that I was something great was in me. I could feel it. I had a sense that it was there from when I was very, very, very young and that I needed to serve that thing. And if if my instincts were were telling me that I was going to die young, I needed to realize that greatness as soon as absolutely possible. So I started to practice three to five hours a day when I was about 10 years old. At five, I knew what I was going to do. But at 10, I started to take it absolutely seriously. Um fast forward and i'm 45 and haven't died when you're in the music business um at the time that i was and even more so now so much of your currency is your beauty and your sex appeal and it always was you know for the beatles it was four mop tops from liverpool before it was their music you know Rock and roll is is always been a hairstyle or or a fashion choice before you've even pressed play on the tape deck or put or put the needle on the record. It's the image and the recklessness of youth that is the reason why we're all there. The the rules of engagement with rock and roll are very very clear. And I was raised in a way where I was a chubby kid and I I obsessed over beauty, but never felt beautiful. And then I was in a job where I was getting my picture taken every day and my beauty and my dwindling 
my dwindling beauty and my dwindling sex appeal, I was keenly aware of its currency value at any given moment in the day, especially when I was signed to a major label. So I was in my late 20s and I see my, my mid-20s, I start to see my hair recede. And I'm like, I see it all falling apart because a successful career in rock and roll is predicated on your ability to remain youthful for as long as you possibly can. This was part of the magic of Bowie. This was part of the magic of any of the greats who have become iconic is that they usually retain um, a boyish shape. They never turn into men. They remain boys for the entirety of their careers. And without that, we they don't have the same shot at becoming iconic in that kind of way because once they become men the the element of the um the archetype requires you to be sort of a sex you you're partly a sexual archetype and once that sort of boyish um sexual energy changes to a, a man's sexual energy you aren't played the same way on the videos you're you're not part of the same youth landscape anymore your your instincts start to shift and you're no longer trusted by the zeitgeist that seeks to kind of pigeonhole you easily in the well look you're the you're a reckless ready to die ready to drink yourself to death 21 year old singing a pop ditty about wow. summer and and being sexy in the summer with the top down so what what happens to you? And I was keenly aware that I was born with a 40-year-old spirit. As a kid, I'd always been grumpy and dissatisfied. And here I was trying to present as a sexy, young, carefree 20-something when I had the major record deal and the music to go along with it and tried to look cute and young and sexy and happy and all of this stuff, always knowing that it wasn't really who I was, but I was interested in presenting as beautiful, as brief as it was, and interested in presenting as skinny and reckless, as brief as those two th parts of my early professional career were. And I, I remember being on a sexy list in, in Paris. I got famous in France briefly when I was in my mid-20s. And they put me on a most sexy list. And I was like, it was a real achievement because there's nothing I'd never, I'd always wondered what being attractive would have felt like. Um, I was just really, really good. And the other stuff, I was just hoping to be skinny and hope. And I starved a lot in those days too. I starved for the photo shoots and just tried to be as attractive uh, just be, because I, I've, I've been a student of the, of, of pop music. My dad had hundreds and hundreds of records at home. I poured over. I knew what made somebody a star versus somebody who wasn't a star. And I knew that I had, I had the talents and all the stuff, but I just didn't have, I didn't have the skinniness or the hairdo for very long. Well, see, summer is when you have to put on the bathing suit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. So my bathing suit era was short and painful <laughs> so yeah i talk about my life a lot <laughs> everyone's bathing suit area everyone's bathing suit area is that way <laughs> you know my, women is just like oh my god i have to, i refuse to wear a onesie i'm wearing a bikini screw you um yeah yeah but now we're in autumn is a different time of life and, and yeah. you know you get to put on the baggy sweater and walk down the street and uh you know listen to gordon lightfoot and just feel like you know the sun has a golden crisp to it at that point. It doesn't hurt you anymore. Man, absolutely. And and 
I, I feel like uh, I, I talk about it a lot because I obsessed over being young and trying to be beautiful, again, just purely because it would have made me more commercially viable for a longer period. But midlife has been great creatively for me. I feel because I was raised to be very competitive. I had one of these dads that made everything into a contest for my brother and I. And to this day, I approach things that there is a winner and a loser, which is a bit sad to admit out loud. But when I go into creating, I create with the vigor and excitement and almost sporty attitude of a teenager. I still feel exactly the same inside as I did when I was young. When I sit down to write a song or make a record, I still feel like what I'm trying to do is set a new bar for myself and for my peers. And I still feel that the the competitive side of what I do is exciting. This is why I, I work out with trainers who are always like, you know, these young 20-somethings and they, they're sadists. They just kick me around the gymnasium and I love it because I want to even just, I want to bask a little bit in their recklessness, a little bit in their, um, in, in that naivete of believing that it's going to last forever. And I was there for two seconds. I was there. I look back and think I bought it for two seconds, but mostly Mostly I've been in my midlife from the beginning. It's just now my body and my, and my instincts are, are, are kind of, we're, we're sat on the same lily pad for, for, the, for the first time. Well, listen, uh, I love talking to you. I hope we get to meet in person one day and just yeah. hang out. Uh, I'm well into the autumn of my life, and uh, you are uh, just at the beginning of that leafless a trail which has so many beautiful things to it that don't involve bathing suits or speedos for sure. Uh, <laughs> so we can both wear baggy trunks and walk down the uh, the road and have a good chat. Um, it, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I, I wish you and uh, your wife uh, uh, nothing but the best. I hope you find the home you're looking for in Peterborough. And uh, I, uh, uh, I bless you for everything you're given. It's really such a joy to listen to someone with such insight and wisdom of their life and, uh, for your music. And I got to check out your TV show. Where do I find your TV show? I'll shoot you and Mike a link. Uh, I'll shoot you guys so you can take a look at it. Because it, 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 we've tried to keep it ephemeral, but there is recorded evidence of it. But we're just not talking too loudly about it. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look. You take care of yourself and Thanks, uh, all the best. All right. You, you, be well. You, thank you. Take care. Oxley Workman on Not That Kind of Rabbi, and what a wonderful conversation. What an interesting man. Yet another gift from my producer, Mike, who said, I think you should talk to this guy. Mike knows me well enough. Mike, very, very good choice, sir. Very good choice. Thank you. <laughs> you had to turn on your mic for that. <laughs> I'm always muted during Not That Kind of Rabbi. I hear you, buddy. I hear you. But uh, we'll do one of our... Uh, I got to do some music with you. We should hang. Um, I'd love it. By the way, anybody who's interested in Toronto, Mike, check him out on his own podcast because it's, uh, what, episode 9,572 <laughs> billion or something? Get in there. <laughs> get in there. Um, that's it for Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph Ben Mergie. If you want to get in touch with me, at Ralph Ben Mergie is the easiest way on Twitter. Just start spelling the... Uh, the food salad of it at the end, you'll figure it out at Ralph Ben Murphy, uh, or go to the Facebook page for not that kind of rabbi. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and well, 
Uh, let's keep it together. Let's show a little internal and external discipline and compassion and wear those masks and keep the six feet. And it, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard, but we've got to keep it together so that everybody gets some safety and health out of all of this. In the meantime, you take care. Bye. This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.